Our Father, as we come to you today, we are reminded of our great need for you in good seasons and in bad seasons, Lord. We are a people who desperately need you, who desperately need your grace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bring comfort to us, bring wisdom to us, bring assurance to us today through your word, in order that we may glorify Christ, in order that we may walk more closely with Christ, in order that Christ may be seen in our lives for the world around us. For his glory we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Genesis chapter 16. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 16 today. That is page 11 if you got one of the Bibles out in the foyer. We're going to be covering the entire chapter, chapter 16 of Genesis today. The Word of God attests of itself that it is a light for our path. That we need it to tell us where to go, how to act, how to behave, how to please God. The most dangerous and misinformed or misleading faith that a person can have is perhaps a faith that is deluded. That is a faith that's been syncretized. And when I say that, I say what I mean is, you know, maybe some of it, maybe even a lot of it is based on God's Word but a lot of it is also based on the wisdom of man. There's a very real treacherousness that is found in bringing, importing worldly ideas into your walk with God, importing worldly philosophies, importing worldly values into your faith. Doing that is almost always a recipe for what you might call a crisis of faith. Abram, is the person we've been looking at for the last, I don't know, couple months. He was having his own personal crisis of faith in the last chapter we studied, in chapter 15. Uh, He was afraid at the beginning. He was afraid because he had gone and defeated these king's armies, and he was afraid of retaliation. And so in his fear, God comes to him and promises to be his shield. When he returned home from battle, he was met by two kings, and it meant passing on a lot of worldly treasure, and so he was wondering if that was the right decision, and God comes to him and promises that he would be his reward. He felt uncertain about the promises that God had made to him and how they would unfold, and God comes to him and says, know for certain. And you would think that after all this, this is all within one chapter, you would think that after a chapter like that, there would be no room for a crisis of faith. There would be no room for a person of faith to have a crisis of faith. I mean, that was the chapter in which the Abrahamic covenant was established. God's eternal promises to Abram and his offspring, his unconditional promises to give Abram an offspring who would inherit the land to which God had led him. How in the world could somebody have a crisis of faith after something like what we saw in chapter 15? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to understand that there's a significant factor that lies at the heart of the difference between a strong faith and a weak faith. A strong faith is a faith that has the Word of God at its very foundation. It is built on the Word of God, and it is resting entirely on the Word of God. 
the less your faith is built on the Word of God, the weaker your faith is going to be. The less your faith is built on the Word of God, the more fragile your faith is going to be. The less your faith is built on the Word of God, the more it's going to be built on the wisdom of man. The more it's going to be built on worldly philosophies and worldly values instead of the Word of God. And let's be very clear about something. The greatest wisdom of man is pure foolishness to God. So how then, or why then, does Abram have this crisis of faith that we're going to see in the 16th chapter? Because his faith, so much like ours, is inclined to be. His faith has one foot on the promises of God and one foot on his own wisdom, his own understanding, which is no wisdom at all. Like you and me, Abram has a tendency to try to take matters into his own hands when he doesn't understand exactly what God is doing or exactly how things are going to play out according to God's promises and purposes. Like you and me, Abram has this tendency to rely on his own understanding when he should be waiting on the Lord patiently and faithfully. Abram's tendency is to act autonomously. That is to act independent of God. Independent of what God says. Independent of what God desires. And that costs him a lot of pain and heartache throughout his story in Genesis. It's something that we're going to see over and over again in his life. We've already seen it a couple times. We're going to keep seeing it. He was instructed at the beginning to leave his father's house and to leave his kindred behind. So what did he do? Well, he had one foot in God's what God said in one foot in his own ideas, and so he brings his nephew Lot along. He gets to the promised land, and there's a famine. So what does he do? Well, this time he only relies on his own understanding. He, there's nothing that he even goes to seek God's will or God's ways about. He just takes it all upon himself. He takes matters into his own hands, and he heads down to Egypt with Sarai and Lot. And while in Egypt, Pharaoh treated him very well, Uh, because of his wife, because he gave uh, Sarai to Pharaoh to be Pharaoh's wife. And so Pharaoh treated him well, and Pharaoh gave him servants. Pharaoh gave him riches. He gave him flocks and, and herds and all these things. And while at the time, that had to feel like blessing upon blessing upon blessing, these things would come back and haunt Abram. And they would cause problems throughout the rest of his life. Our passage today is no exception. In fact, we're going to see some of the stuff that he got down in Egypt create some big problems for him today. In our passage today, Abram's wife Sarai will persuade Abram to take a servant whom she got while they were down in Egypt as his second wife. And it's going to create division and strife between Abram and Sarai like they had probably never known before as you might imagine. And so, the point of our passage today is that there is no situation, that there is no hurt, that there is no offense that is impossible to overcome when we humbly submit ourselves to the Lord. So our passage today starts with uh, Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. We read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. 
And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Crisis of faith. Desperate people are prone to resort to desperate measures, desperate actions. And Abram and Sarai are both feeling pretty desperate at this point. That's exactly where somebody is when they're having a crisis of faith. They're feeling desperate. They're feeling like they need to do something. So they're in a place of desperation because they're not exactly sure what to do. And you wouldn't think that Abram would be in a place of desperation after what we saw in the previous chapter. But while he received God's assurance of his promises to bless Abram with descendants that could not be counted, and with the promise that his offspring already has the land, remember God said, I give the land to your offspring. Let's imagine what the conversation at dinner must have been like that night when Abram went home to tell Sarai about the promises that God had made. Abram says, honey, you won't believe this. God promised me that my offspring would be as uncountable as the stars of the sky. Your offspring, huh? That's great. That's great. Your offspring. Honey, you won't believe what else God said. He also said that He gives the land to my offspring. Gives, present tense. We don't have to wait. He's, he's given the land to my offspring. Your offspring, huh? Great. What about my offspring? What is God doing to give me an offspring? Well, I don't know. I, I just kind of assumed that when God promised to give me an offspring, He promised to give you an offspring too, being that marriage has made us one flesh in everything. And, well, hello, Mr. I assume everything correctly. You know, what if you assumed wrong? Now, that's probably not exactly how the conversation went down, but that's pretty much where they are right now. That's what's going on in their marriage. Sarai is feeling really confused, to say the very least. Abram has been promised offspring over and over again, but Sarai, his wife, continues to have a barren womb, even after they've been in the land for ten years. Ten years after they received God's promise, her womb is still barren. And Abram's old, and Sarai is old. And so while Abram believed the promises that God made, and I think we can assume that Sarai probably has too, the fact that her womb continues to be barren, the fact that she still hasn't had children, turns out to be a point of contention between her and God. It's creating a conflict in her heart. God has made a promise for offspring, but now she's past the age of being able to bear children, naturally speaking. He's made this promise, but what about her? It doesn't seem like it's coming to fruition. God has made this promise for offspring, but He didn't specifically say that it would come through Sarai. And so in Sarai's mind, she's starting to think, maybe when God made this promise to Abram, I wasn't even included in the picture. It should have been a given. 
It should have just been assumed outright that that was God's plan. That because Sarai was his wife, that the offspring would come through Sarai. Because God created marriage as an institution which is a lifelong covenant between one biological male and one biological female. That's it. One biological male, one biological female for life. And so given that, they should have known that it would come through Sarai because this is God's design for marriage. It's not man's design. And so man has no right to tinker or toy or tamper with God's design for marriage. Let's say that you go to a museum and you see a work of art, a painting by the best artist in the world. And I mean, this, this is a, a beautiful, beautiful painting, and, and the artist says, you can, you can have this, you can borrow this for, for a season. And so you look at it, and you think to yourself, well, it's beautiful and everything, but it's missing something. And so out comes your Sharpie, and you put a couple stick figures into this painting. What have you just done to the painting? You've ruined it. You've defiled it. And it wasn't yours to defile. It wasn't yours to mess with. You didn't improve it. The most that you could possibly do is devalue it, is defile it. The same thing works with marriage. That's exactly what man does when he tries to tamper or toy or tinker with God's design for marriage. And so Sarah comes up with this idea that involves messing with God's design for marriage. She has a servant named Hagar whom she picked up down in Egypt when she and Abram were down there during the famine. And she thinks that it would be acceptable for Abram to try to create his offspring with her servant, Hagar. Where would Sarai have come up with an idea like that? Well, let's just start with where she didn't get it. She didn't get that idea from God. She didn't get that idea by consulting God. In fact, she, she left God completely out of this decision. No, she didn't get the idea from God. She didn't even get the idea from Abram. You might think, you know, Abram would be the one who would be most likely to put this kind of idea in her mind. No, she got this idea from the pagan culture around them because it was acceptable in the land in which they were living. So what she's doing here is she is diluting her faith. She's syncretizing her faith. She's taking godly promises and worldly ideas and she's putting them into a blender and hitting frappe for 30 seconds and just letting it be what it is. Blending a promise from God with a worldly value. And that's a recipe for a broken heart. But do you see her defiance toward God? Look what she says. Verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's God's fault. Remember back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? And what did they do when God calls them out on it? Adam says, oh, it, it's not my fault. It's, it's the woman that you gave me. So he's blaming both of them. He's putting the blame on, on God and the woman. But Abram, apparently, you know, he's, he's still capable of of begetting a child. So it can't be Abram's fault. No, she's blaming God. And so Sarai starts second-guessing God, starts second-guessing the promises that God has made. 
And verse 2 tells us that Abram listened to her. He listened to this idea that had nothing to do with God's will or God's ways. He was passive about it. But do you see what's happening here? There's, there's this pattern that we keep seeing in Abram's life where he'll have a moment in which he, he does something great where his faith really shines. His faith is just solid. And immediately after that moment, he endures some type of test, some type of temptation. When God established the Abrahamic covenant in the previous chapter, that was a great moment in Abram's life. It was a high point in his faith journey. But now comes the test. Now comes the temptation. And Abram fails. And it's not like he just scores a 59 on this, like he almost passed. No, he scores a zero on this. He fails this test badly. There's a principle in here that we should be aware of. And that is that temptation can come from even those who are the closest to us. Everything has to be tested against God's Word. Even what those who are closest to us might suggest. But what we see here is that two verses after the Abrahamic covenant was established, Abram breaks his covenant with his wife. The covenant that God promised to Abram in chapter 15, two verses later, Abram breaks his covenant with his wife. Praise the Lord that God doesn't break His covenants as easily as we're inclined to. And how does that even happen? How does it happen that two verses later He would break His covenant? It happens when you stop trusting in God. It happens when you stop seeking the will of God in the Word of God. It happens when you stop trusting in the promises of God and you start trusting instead in your own understanding, in your own wisdom. It happens when you stop trusting in the promises of God and instead, because you're not sure what God's up to, you decide to take matters completely into your own hands regardless of what His will or His ways might be. Now, in their culture, this was a perfectly legal move. This was a perfectly legal suggestion. They allowed it in their land. But just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's ethical. Just because the law of the land says you can do something doesn't mean that God would have you do that. Just because it's legal to do this or that doesn't mean it pleases God. The law might say, Sure, Abram can take Hagar as a second wife. Can we, can we find a third for you? But that's not what God says. When, what, what Abram and, and Sarah have failed to realize is that God was actually waiting and waiting and waiting for Abram and Sarah to be so old that it was impossible for them to have kids on their own. And so the only explanation would be that God had given this child to them, and so God would be the one to get all of the glory. But when he takes matters into his own hands, what's he really doing? He's trying to take some of God's glory. He's trying to to get some credit here by taking matters into his own hands. See, having the right motivation is a good thing. But it's also helpful if we keep in mind that God might have something to say about the method. It's good to have 
good intentions. But what does God say about it, if anything? See, in America, we have this thing with pragmatism, where we think that whatever works must be the best way. Whatever, or, or whatever feels good. We like sentimentality too. We're, we're somewhere between pragmatism and sentimentality. If something feels good, then surely God must approve of it, right? Because why else would it feel good? The answer to that is because our hearts are so desperately deceptive that we would think that poison is the greatest stuff in the world to ingest. Our hearts are so deceptive. And that's not to say that pragmatism is bad, necessarily. And that's not to say that sentimentality is bad, necessarily. The question is, does God have something to say about the methods that we decide to go with? Now, there's a story, a few books later, of these two guys named Nadab and Abihu. And they go into the temple with what's called strange fire. And they weren't supposed to do that. God had specifically instructed what was acceptable to him. But they bring in strange fire, and they end up being consumed. The lesson there is that our hearts mislead us. The lesson there is that pragmatism and practicality isn't always a way of pleasing God. The lesson there is we must check not only our intentions but our methods with the Word of God. Marriage is designed. God specifically designed marriage to glorify God. That is the way that God created it. That's the means for which it exists. Yes, He designed it to be also a foundation for society. But beyond the practical or pragmatic implications of marriage, marriage is designed to glorify God. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that it's a picture of the gospel. The way that a husband loves his wife and the way that a wife loves her husband and the way that they submit to one another is a picture of the way that the church submits to Christ and Christ loves the church. It's a picture of the gospel. And God has always, always been about the gospel. Even back in Genesis, God was about the gospel. Even before Genesis, God was about the gospel. Marriage is designed to take two selfish, two self-centered, two self-serving sinners, put them under one roof, and use that, use that scenario, use that context to purify both of them, teaching both of them to become selfless rather than selfish, teaching them to think of others before they think of themselves. Teaching them to serve somebody else before they think of being served. But what happens in marriage is that those two sinners become very, very familiar with the sins of the other person. Because marriage has a way of putting your sins under a magnifying glass and making them clear as day to somebody else. Now, you might think that you can hide your sin for a while. You might think that your flaws won't ever show up, but believe me, husbands, your wives know every flaw that you have, and wives know that your husband knows every sin that you have, and stop nudging each other. 
<laughs> because that's the way that marriage is designed to work, is we're supposed to see those things. Those things are under the magnifying glass. And the reason that we're supposed to see those things is because God wants to purge those things from our lives. And there's no other context that does that better than marriage. Only God, in His infinite and eternal wisdom, would design an institution in which two sinners live together under the same roof. And God uses that context as a means of teaching both of them to become more selfless. To become more like Christ. But marriage is not ours. To tinker and toy and tamper with. Marriage belongs to God because it's supposed to point, God, point to God. It's supposed to glorify God. It's a picture of the Gospel. And the Gospel belongs to God. But in this case, Abram and Sarai decide to take matters into their own hands. They decide to lean on their own, their own understanding rather than trusting in the Lord. God made these promises over, over and over again through the last ten years, and they don't understand, so they take matters into their own hands. And so at the ripe old age of 85, Abram takes Hagar as a second wife. A moment of triumph in chapter 15, followed by a moment of testing, two verses into chapter 16, and he scores a goose egg. He completely fails on this test. Let's continue looking at verses 4 to 6. We read, And he went, Abram that is, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is usually the way sin works. Sin has a domino effect. It doesn't just stay with one thing. Sometimes it does. Most of the time, no. There's, an, there's a domino effect. And that's what we see going on here. The sin that started back in verse 1 has now led to this big explosion. This is where the tragedy of the situation really starts to unfold. Abram was passive in his faith. And you put a little pressure on a passive faith and you get problems. A passive faith plus problems or plus pressure equals problems. So Abram goes along with Sarai's idea. He takes Hagar as his second wife and Hagar conceives a child just like Sarai had planned and apparently hoped. But what she hadn't planned is that Hagar would feel bitterness and contempt toward Sarai as a result of this. Now the text doesn't exactly tell us why Sarai uh, or why Hagar feels contempt toward Sarai, but I suppose there are, there are a couple reasons that we might guess. First of all, maybe she uh, didn't like the idea of being with Abram. Maybe she didn't want to be married to Abram. She was just forced into the situation. She didn't really have a voice in the matter because she was a servant in a culture that didn't uh, didn't value or, or or show honor to servants in any way. Or maybe it's because she loved Abram. 
And she saw Abram as a means by which she was promoted from, from servant to wife. Wife of a man who has all these promises from God. Either way, we don't, we don't need to know exactly why she felt contempt, but we, need, we do need to see that she did feel contempt towards Sarai. The point is that this situation creates strife between Sarai and Hagar, which in turn creates strife between Abram and Sarai. Apparently they had, had all gotten along together just fine until Sarai's brilliant idea here. Until now. And so now we all recognize that there is going to be conflict in life. If you're married, there is going to be conflict. You can live happily ever after, but there's still going to be conflict somewhere along the line because that's what happens when you put two sinners together under the same roof. Sooner or later, there will be conflict. Sometimes it can be avoided. Sometimes you just got to deal with it. Sometimes you just got to deal with it. But there is no conflict that is more painful, more heart-wrenching, more difficult to deal with than family fights, than family conflict. And at the root of every conflict, you will find some kind of sinful attitude, either on behalf of the husband or on behalf of the wife or on behalf of both. When you lean on your own understanding... When you take matters into your own hands and act autonomously, act independently of God's will, this is what happens. Conflict is bound to arise. James talked about the reason that we have conflict, the reason that we have quarrels. Listen to what he says in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Which is exactly what's going on in Genesis chapter 16, right? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Notice that Abram and Sarai didn't ask God whether this was an acceptable option. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, which, remember verse 1, are causing the problems for you. It's causing the quarreling for you. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You might say, how are they making friends with the world? By bringing in worldly ideas. By importing worldly values, worldly philosophies into an institution designed by God to glorify God. By doing that, they're making friends with the world. And by making friends with the world, they're making enmity with God. And it all traces back to the passions within themselves that are at war with one another. Why is there conflict between Abram and Sarai? Because of sin. Because of sin. Because, because they're both selfish people. Because they tampered with the institution of marriage. Because they didn't trust the Lord's promises. Abram's desire to have an offspring was a good desire. But these aren't the means that God had ordained. 
And so his desire to have an offspring leads him to sin. And Sarai's desire to have the offspring, to see her husband exalted, leads her to sin. So we might ask, we should ask, what should they have done instead of all this? And the answer might seem pretty clear, but let's just make sure that we're all on the same page. They should have prayed together about it. They should have brought their concerns to God. They should have created an altar, built an altar, and worshipped God and prayed together right then and there. They could have brought their confusion. They could have brought their frustration to the Lord. They should have humbled themselves. They should have repented of their selfish desires and confessed their selfish desires. And the Lord would have forgiven them and all of this conflict would have been avoided. But instead, they go through with the plan. And it backfires because Hagar has a heart. She has emotions. She feels used. She feels mistreated already. And so she feels maybe some jealousy. And so she feels contempt toward Sarai. And so Sarai throws it all back in Abram's face. Placing the guilt entirely on Abram. Where, let's face it, it belonged. Because he didn't need to go along with this plan. It takes two. He did his part. She came up with the idea, but he's actually the one who did it. And he does nothing. He's done nothing but fold under pressure through these six verses. First, he goes along with Sarai's idea. And after this whole thing blows up in their faces, he basically tells her, you know, she's, she's your servant. Notice in verse 6, he doesn't say, she's my wife. He says, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. He doesn't say, my wife is in your power. No. He says, your servant. He just folds. Even if, even if this were kind of acceptable for God, and it's not, but even if it were, he would have a, a responsibility to stand up for her. And even if he were a dignified human being at this point, he would be standing up for her and saying, hey, this is my fault. But instead he says, eh, she's your servant. Do with her as you please. Which results in Sarai mistreating her and abusing Hagar. Now there are a lot of lessons in here for us. We could just stop here and talk about the mess that's been created and how it could have been avoided. But the, the one lesson that I want us to see first and foremost is that sin has a domino effect. It has a ripple effect. It's like throwing a brick into a, into a calm, calm lake. Sin will often bring consequences that are beyond our ability to control. And, that they, and, and these, these consequences are often beyond what we would have expected as consequences. Maybe... A sin seems good in the moment because of pragmatism or because of sentimentality or because of selfishness or fill in the blank, whatever reason. Maybe it seems like a good idea in the moment. Maybe it seems wise in the moment. But when it comes to relational sin, matters of the heart, there are some wounds that go deeper than I'm sorry can instantaneously heal. And that's not to say that this situation can't be worked out. That's not to say that there can't be reconciliation and restoration. It's not to say that God's grace can't prevail. Of course it can. Or that the relationship can't be fixed. Of course it can if God's in the middle of it. 
But if nothing else, sin makes things more complicated than they should be. Sin makes things more painful than they need to be. Especially in the context of marriage. Is there pressure in our society to tinker with or tamper with God's design for marriage? You better believe it. It's everywhere. It's front page news practically. We must not compromise on it though. Because marriage is not ours to tinker with or tamper with. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between one biological male and one biological female. Period. Lifelong promise. Lifelong covenant. Till death do you part. It's designed not only for God's glory, it's designed for your sanctification. Does that mean that there is never going to be conflict in your home? No, it doesn't. There will be because we both still have still, uh, you know, sinful tendencies. Husband and wife still have sinful tendencies. And it's okay, therefore, if there's some conflict as long as you are resolved to reconcile. You are resolved to bring the issue to the Lord and have it resolved. To, to, to bring God's grace into the middle of it. It's normal for there to be some conflict in the home. But it must be addressed in a healthy way that glorifies God, seeking to honor God by seeking what God has to say about it in His Word. His Word is a lamp to our feet. If we learn to repent of our self-centeredness, if we learn to repent of our selfishness, a lot of the conflict in the home will be done away with just with that much. But what about Hagar? What's going on with her? What's, what's going to happen to her? What does she do when she gets mistreated, abused by Sarai? She runs away, but she won't be gone for too long. Let's look at verses 7-12. to 12. Verse 6 ended with saying, Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Sarai, uh, Hagar fled from Sarai. Starting in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now we don't know anything about Hagar at this point other than she's... Egyptian, and she was Sarai's servant. She's been absent. She's been completely missing from the story up until this point. So we don't know if Hagar knew the Lord up until this point. The text doesn't tell us. We can be pretty confident that she knew about the Lord because of Abram. You know, she she knew about Abram's God. We can be pretty sure about that, but we don't know if she knew him on a personal level. But we know that she has been abused. She's been mistreated. We know that she is on the run. And she's gone to a place where she probably thinks that she is all alone, where nobody can find her. But the truth is, 
were never alone. Hagar had been nothing but this lowly servant. Maybe she thought that things had taken a turn for the better and she'd been promoted to wife status in man's eyes, but not in God's eyes. God didn't recognize this second marriage. How do we know that? Because of verse 9. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. He doesn't say, return to your husband and submit to him. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. So who is this? Who's this, this character called the angel of the Lord? If you know me, you know that I'm of the opinion that a lot of the times, not, not always, but, but a lot of times when you see this, this term, the angel of the Lord, it's actually referring to Jesus. It's referring to God in the flesh. And if you look at what this angel of the Lord says to Hagar in verse 10, he, he doesn't say God will multiply your offspring. He doesn't say the Lord will multiply your offspring. No, he says I will surely multiply your offspring. He says that he's going to be the one to do it. The angel of the Lord says he's the one who's going to do it. And that's not something that any old angel is capable of doing. That's something that only God is capable of doing. And so we can be 100% sure here that this is God in the flesh. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus before 2,000 years later. Hagar's hurting Undoubtedly, she, she's angry, she's confused, she feels alone. And who can blame her? I mean, wouldn't you feel alone if you were in her situation? Think about it. She's been living in Canaan for several years, separated by hundreds of miles from all of her family in this strange land. And now, not only is she in a strange land, but she's a single woman in a strange land. And not only is she a single woman in a strange land, she's a single pregnant woman in a strange land, and a culture that didn't treat women or servants with dignity and respect. And so at this point, we can be certain that she feels hopeless. We can be certain that she feels abandoned. And it's in this context that we read, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. She wasn't seeking God, but God sought her. And this gives us just a, this, this beautiful picture of God's compassion toward the unloved, toward the unlovely, toward the rejected, toward the forgotten, toward the overlooked. She feels like nobody cares, but God cares. She feels like nobody is on her side, but God is there for her, comforting her in her affliction. She feels like she's in a place where she can't be found, but God has found her. She feels unseen, but God has seen her. She could flee from Abram. She could flee from Sarai, but she could not flee from God. She could hide herself from man, but God knew where to find her. God is a seeking God. God is a seeking God. He doesn't wait for anyone to seek Him. And if He did, He would never be found because Scripture tells us in very plain, very forthright language that nobody seeks God. Not even one. But God is a seeking God. This was part of Christ's purpose in taking on flesh and walking the face of the earth as, 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 a, as fully God and fully man. 
He came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to seek and save the lost. And this is the testimony of every single one of us who are in Christ. This is the testimony of every Christian on the face of the earth. We did not seek God. If we did seek God, it's because He first sought us. We did not love God. If we love God at all, it's because He first loved us. Every single one of us, we once were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. That's the testimony of every single Christian. The angel of the Lord, I love this, he knows her by name. He calls her by name. It's not like there's anything new, anything surprising to him, anything that he doesn't know. He calls her by name. He knows where she's been. He knows that she's Sarai's servant. And this had to be kind of startling to Hagar. I mean, you're in a place where you feel like you're alone and you don't think that anybody's going to know you. In our world today, it's not too hard to find information about a person, to find out a person's name uh, you know, from a picture. You can ask around on Facebook or whatever. But in that day and age, it would have been, it, it must have seemed impossible for somebody to show up at this spring where she's getting water and to call her by name. And he asks her some really interesting questions. He says, where are you coming from and where are you going? Which is really interesting if you think about it because back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did he ask them? He said, where are you? Present tense. He doesn't use the present tense here with Hagar. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? He asks about the, the, the past and the future. He doesn't even mention the present. Whenever God asks people for information in the Bible, it's always really interesting and we should always take note of it because we know that He's not looking for information. God is never seeking information. God knows everything from eternity. There's never been a time where He looked down the corridor of time and saw that somebody was going to do this or that. No, He knows it from eternity. He has never learned anything because He already knows it all by Himself. So He's not looking for information for himself. He's never learned anything. No, when God asks questions, instead, if you, if you look at the context and the, the situations in Scripture where he starts asking questions, it's a means of prompting the person to consider their situation, to consider their choices. Think of Jesus at the, at the well, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He knows what her situation is, but he starts asking questions, not because he's trying to gain information, but because he's trying to get her to open up about her situation and to consider the choices that she has made. When God asks questions, that's what he's doing. He's prompting a person to consider their choices and their circumstances. And notice that she tells him with straightforward honesty exactly where she's been, but she doesn't tell him where she's going. And I would imagine that's because she has no idea. She has no idea where she's going. She knows where she's been, but she doesn't know where she's going. She hadn't been seeking God. What we see here, though, is a very important principle. When you're hurt, when you're angry, when you feel like running away, it's not that you need to escape. Instead, it's that you need to seek the Lord. It's that you need to find shelter, find refuge in Him. You need to seek His will. You need to seek His ways. You need to seek Him as your hiding place. 
God sees us when we feel unseen. God cares when we're facing afflictions or hardships or trials or when we're in despair. He cares. And so he gives kind of two pieces of news. There's good news and there's bad news. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news from Hagar's perspective is that God's will is for Hagar to return and to submit to Sarai. That was going to be hard. That was very obviously something that Hagar had no desire to do whatsoever, but that is what God tells her to do. Go back and submit to Sarai. The good news, I suppose, is that God would bless her offspring, who would be named Ishmael. And hence begins the Arab-Israeli conflict. This is where it begins. Genesis chapter 16. All the problems in the Middle East today go back to this incident. Ishmael would be described as a wild donkey of a man. And I don't know about you, but I sure don't want the Lord to have that description for me. A wild donkey of a man. What makes a wild donkey a wild donkey? Well, he's not tame. What makes a tame donkey a tame donkey? The fact that it does what you want it to do. The fact that it submits to its owner. And so the idea here that that gets kind of implied between the lines is that Ishmael would be a man who would not submit to God. God has made some incredible and some unexpected, certainly undeserved promises here to Sarai, but first or to to Hagar, but first, Hagar needs to go home and submit. She needs to submit to God's will. And as Americans, we kind of cringe with that word, don't we? Submit. Man, we hate that word, submit. If you think about it, I mean, this country was practically founded in rejection of the concept of submission. And our independent, autonomous spirit continues to this present day. It's drilled deep into us at a very young age that submission is a negative thing. And so when we come upon it in the, in the Scriptures, we feel like we need to defend it. We feel like we need to dance around it. Like we can't just be straightforward with it and take it for what it means. Like we need to defend God's Word. Like God's Word might be so offensive because it tells us to submit. The God of the universe instructs us to submit. But time and time again, that's exactly what the Bible does. And to dance around it isn't a smart decision, isn't a wise decision. The Bible tells us to submit to the government. The Bible tells us to submit to our parents, submit to your spouses, submit to your spiritual leaders, submit to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The list goes on and on and on. The life of a Christian is a life of submission to God and to the institutions that He has designed us to submit ourselves to. Think about what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he's writing to a church that's been persecuted and the probably has a desire to rise up against the governing forces. He says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or king or president as supreme, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. What? This is the will of God 
that we submit to the governing authorities. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He goes on to say, verse, verse, 16, verse, or verse 18, sorry, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Oh man, that hits home for somebody like Hagar, doesn't it? Don't just submit yourselves to a, a, to a master, to, a, to, to, to somebody who's good. But even if they're unjust, submit yourself to them too. Why? Because God is sovereign and because God has instructed us to do that. So when you're wounded, when you feel like running away, going back, I am positive, is the last place that you want to go. Submitting to the person who has wounded you is probably the last thing you feel like doing. But that is what God tells Hagar to do. This is not the wisdom of man. No person would have told her, go back to this woman who has abused and mistreated you. They'd say, no, run, be free, follow your heart, which is deceptive above everything. No, this is the wisdom of God. Hagar, go home and submit. But she won't return alone. She's going to return with the blessings and the promises of God. So the passage continues. Verses 13 to 16. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Your translation may also say, uh, you are a God who sees me. It's a valid translation. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Ro'ai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar's outlook on life, her entire demeanor, has been completely changed by this encounter that she's had with God. She may have felt like she was too small to be noticed by God. She may have felt like she was too unimportant to be cared for by God, but she calls Him the Lord who sees me. In the midst of your hardships, friends, remember this. God is sovereign. Whatever your, tar- tr- your trial, whatever your temptation, whatever, your, whatever furnace God is putting you through, He is sovereign over it and He has you there for a reason. His will is not always for you to do what is natural. His will is not for you to follow your heart. His will is not for you to do necessarily what is easy. No, His will is for you to grow in the likeness of Christ. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He says, this is the submission passage, and he ends it by saying this, for to this, to what? To trials, to hardships, to tribulations. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. To learn To trust God in the midst of your suffering is to grow in the likeness of Christ. If you think about the night in which he was betrayed and he's in the garden praying for God to take this this cup of wrath away from him, knowing that that's what was coming, that the the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him because the sins of his people were going to be placed upon him. And so he says, 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's the attitude that lies at the heart of submission. That's the attitude that says, God, you are sovereign over this, so no matter what comes, no matter what happens, I'm just going to trust you anyway. Know this, friends. God sees you. God knows you. God cares about your hurt. God cares about how you feel. But God desires for you to grow in Christ's likeness more than anything. Submitting to Sarai wasn't just submitting to Sarai for Hagar. By submitting to, to, to Sarai, she was actually submitting to God. By us submitting to our spouses, to the governing institutions, to whatever God has told us to submit to, is not just submitting to those institutions, it is submitting ourselves to God. See, Abram, Sarai, and Hagar all did the same thing. They all made the same mistake. They all took matters into their own hands rather than trusting in God, rather than looking to God. But the solution for all three of them was the same, to submit to God. Friends, the, the question is not if you will endure hardship or if you will face trials or affliction. The question is when and in what way. And Jesus left an example for us to follow. He didn't sin. He didn't speak one deceptive word. Sin may bring practical consequences into your lives that are beyond your control, but even those consequences are not beyond God's ability to use for His glory and for your good, and it's not beyond His ability to forgive. The question is not if you will suffer hardship, but when and how. Because Paul says to Timothy, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so my prayer is that when you do face hardship, and you will at some point, my prayer is that you will see the God who sees you. And that He would grant you the resolve. That He would grant you the wisdom. That He would grant you the fortitude and the integrity to submit to His will and His ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. You are a God who is so compassionate. A God who is a father to the fatherless. A God who cares for orphans and widows. A God who cares for those who are down and out. The destitute, the poor, the needy. Thank You, God, for showing us this beautiful picture of Your deep, deep compassion. Lord, we, rec we recognize that in the depths of our hearts, we are rebels. And that we don't desire to submit to your will by nature. But we pray, God, that you would grant us the desire to please you by pursuing your will. So, Lord, teach us to walk in your ways. Teach us to know your will and to submit to it, even when it's hard, even when it feels impossible not because it's easy for us, maybe because it's hard for us. We need You. And Your strength, Your wisdom, Your ways can be demonstrated in our joyful submission in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardships and heartaches. God, we are reminded that You are sovereign over it all and that You are causing all things to work 
for your glory and for the good of your people. So Lord, grant us understanding. And where we lack understanding, grant us the wisdom to submit ourselves to you for the glory of Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.